0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker, and on AM radio.
0: This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Around about seven or so years ago, I did something in my 40s that completely altered my life. I changed careers. I started in the world of radio uh, on a community radio station. Uh, making me one of many, many, a growing number of Aussies, making those big shifts when it comes to work. I've got to say, I've not regretted a second of it. My name's Nick Healy. I'm filling in for Rochelle Hunt this week. I'm speaking to you from Shepparton in the Golden Valley. And this morning, you and I are talking about those later life career changes, the joys, the challenges, how we can make it easier for people to make that jump and even what it's like to reskill later in life, to go back to school and, of course, everything else in between. So this morning, jump on the phone and tell me, have you made a career change? How did it go? What would you want someone else to know about what you went through? Or is it something you're hoping to do soon? What's stopping you? What are the barriers?
1: On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker, and on AM radio,
0: this is the Conversation Hour. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Now, Ellen Hooper is an award winning careers coach. She works with businesses and individuals, helps them find that not only the right work, but the right way to work as well. Ellen, good morning to you.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I'm really excited to talk about this. As you just heard, it's something very, very close to my heart. But do you, in your work, see a lot of people who want to make that career change later in life?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and your story is such a great one because you're never too old to do meaningful work and you love the work you're doing. Um, I think that the later in life we get, the more we can feel like we've got this sunk cost we've got to chase. Mm. Um, I've also got, um, have changed careers in my lifetime too. I actually started my career as a lawyer, and so I know what it's like to have spent a lot of time getting a degree and... You know, beating everyone else out for that job, and then feeling like, oh gosh, is am I wasting it um, because it's not really it's not really ticking my boxes anymore? And and you know, am I kind of courageous enough to to <laughs> do something new?
0: What, what did drive you to make that career change?
2: I just I just really became quite unhappy in the work that I was doing and I do find that when people change careers there's either a really strong push so there's something that's really not working for them at work Mm. and and unfortunately so many people do have really hard and um, experiences at work or there's a really big pull which it sounds like there might have been for you Nick like there's actually (laughs) something really clear there's a dream I've always had or you know there's I saw someone on TV and I just thought, wow, I really want to know more about that or, or do that. So I find that it's one of the two um, that really propel people into making those changes because they're hard and they're pretty scary.
0: They are very scary. It's quite daunting and it sounds like you went through the same way. I mean, obviously coming out with a law degree, that's a big thing to then say I'm going to put behind me and move on to the next stage of my life. What are some of the challenges people talk to you about when it comes to those career changes?
2: I find that people even think really small about what they could do next. So, you know, in my case of being a lawyer, I could have kind of looked at other, may, maybe I would be happier in a different law firm or mm, mm. a different area of law. And, and when we think um, in a pretty narrow way, it kind of can feel like, oh, what's the point? You know, <laughs> it's probably all a bit the same. Or we can think really big so we can have really big dreams of, you know, if I if I suddenly woke up today and thought, actually, my lifelong dream is to be a surgeon, you know, that's a really long, big path and, and that can feel daunting as well. Um, so I, I think that's the challenges, one of the big challenges that people face. And the other is finances. Yeah. Um, and I think we tend to actually think quite abstractly about our finances. So one of the big tips I give people is why don't you actually do some um, work on working out how much you actually need to spend in a year? You know, what's what's really necessary? What's discretionary? What you, would you be willing to trade? You might actually be in a better financial position than you thought. And there's plenty of advisors out there who can help you as well. Um, so you can make that salary a bit less of a priority while you make the transition.
0: It can be a very difficult psychological step to make, uh, and speaking from experience here, to to know that you will be deliberately stepping down (laughs) in terms of salary. Um, We're so conditioned as a society to assume that that is the wrong way to go.
2: Yeah, and sometimes just exploring is really useful too. I've been really really um, lucky to have been able to make lateral sideward steps. So while I have been willing at times to step backwards in terms of salary, and I do sometimes think that you you go back to go forwards, um, my personal Ah. experience has been I've been able to do those kind of lateral sideways moves. So sometimes we, yeah, we just got to get a bit more information and evidence to really test if it is what we think it is.
0: You mentioned before that sometimes we think too small about these career changes. Could you go a little further on that? What sort of stuff have you seen?
2: I think that we can get really attached because our jobs often form our identities. So, you know, if I'm Mm. an accountant then that really becomes who I am as a person and maybe all my friends are accountants and maybe my parents are really, really proud that I'm an accountant they tell all their friends at cocktail parties, you know, we can... (laughs) we can really it can become who i am not the job that i do and i think something that's a really nice thing to do is actually kind of go back to childhood you know can you find some old photos my my mom actually just presented us with um oh what's even the word vhs's from our childhood that she had had converted so we could watch them and it those there's lots of um uh, secrets not the right word there's lots of little um Clues in there about what you really enjoy, what you find really interesting, what you really love, and the you know my seven year old just told me I want to be a singer like Taylor Swift. You know when we're young,
0: what a goal! Absolutely.
2: I I told him that what he needed most is resilience, but um. You know, when we think back to childhood, before all the kind of layers of doubt and the practicalities of life, which which are really important, of course, as an adult, Mm. but they can give us some little hints into the things that we we really love.
0: Ellen, it's it's interesting that when, when people start thinking about career changes... Sometimes I worry it's based on being unhappy, not mm. necessarily on what you think will make you happy. Like you you just know you need a change now. Potentially you haven't thought through what will be that change. Am I making sense?
2: Yeah, and what I find is that we often think a lot about the job title and the oh. work we're doing. But if you are unhappy at work, I really encourage you to expand your view of what you could change because maybe you're doing the right job, quote unquote right, but you're doing a job that suits you well but in an industry that doesn't. Um, maybe you, maybe the commute's just getting you down. I mean, there's so much research about that and I don't want to um, spin ballers off onto a completely different topic. No. <laughs> but it's, you know, or, or maybe um, the people that we're working with are just not people that are really well suited to us and, and who we admire. So sometimes we'll go out searching for a new job title and particularly people who come through my coaching practice will often come in saying, I've decided I need to do another degree, you know, and I call that kind of throwing all the cards in the air and sometimes that is right for people. But more often than not, I do work with people about, okay, well, what's a small change that you could make so that you can really test, you know, do I actually want to become a surgeon or... Maybe I actually just want to um, help people with their health. And so then that, there's hundreds of different career paths I could take without spending you know, seven years and hundreds of thousands of dollars on study.
0: I'm speaking with Ellen Herbert. She's an award-winning careers coach. We're talking about making a career change later in life. And I'd love to hear from you this morning if it's something you've done. When I made that shift into radio, I was quite lucky that I had a full network. Mm. I I knew some people to make contact with. I, I knew a few people who were working in community radio. But for many people trying to make that midlife career change, they don't have that network. They're not even sure where to start contacting people about how to go making that shift.
2: I think we really underestimate our secondary network. So if you have a career in mind, so if, if someone wants to move into radio and they don't know anyone who personally who's into radio, if we can be a bit brave and just start saying to the people that we do know, do you know anyone who works in radio? Because I would really love to buy them a coffee and talk to them. People are very generous. With their time and energy, <laughs> we love talking about ourselves. <laughs> I've found, <laughs> so uh, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure Nick, you knows, if someone in your network said, "I've got a friend who's really interested in making the uh, transition," that you'd have a few stories you'd like to tell them. So we often underestimate that our network has a network as well. And then you know that takes us into our six degrees of separation from almost anyone in the world but that's a really great tip and also technology can really help us too now so um linkedin's a really good resource if there's a particular company that one of my clients wants to work in i'll often get them to mine and see if they have any mutual connections that work
0: at that company huh. as well so we, linkedin things like that can be uh, quite helpful i, I I wonder, because I know even the way we apply for jobs, if you have been in the same career for a while, it can be an incredibly uh, daunting process, even the thought of getting a CV together, making that job application, and the interview process can be very different these days.
2: Yeah, and there's something... I don't have the exact statistics, so um, bear with me and I'm sure your listeners will do some fact-checking, but there's some (laughs) amazing statistic about only three... 30%, 30%, I think, of roles are actually advertised. There's a lot of hiring that goes on um, through connections and networks and through internal channels as well. So I I think before we get into uh, applying for jobs, mm. because that's, of course, a necessary evil and it can be very challenging, it's really important to make sure using your connections, you know, making an internal move can be one of the most successful ways because you, the people in the organisation know and trust you and they might be willing to take a bit of a gamble that you can practise a skill that you haven't demonstrated to them before. But also, if you are applying for a job, you do really want to see if you've got a connection there because you want to try to skip the tech, basically, Um Big organizations will have hundreds sometimes thousands of people mm. applying for jobs. They they are using technology to screen those applications. So any chance you have to talk to a human being is going to be really, really useful.
0: Ellen, hold on for a second. We've got Karen from Williamstown on the line. Karen, good morning to you. Hello. Karen, you made a you made a change like this, a, a career change.
3: Absolutely. So it actually started when my children left home and I was just walking around in tears nearly um thinking what am I going to be doing now? And so I started on a undergraduate degree in history and art history and I wanted to get into um, some sort of history area or museum area. And uh, that led me to do a, a master's degree in cultural heritage in museum studies. Mm. And now I have a museum job where I'm the curator and I just helped start up the Australian Orphanage Museum in Geelong
0: uh, for Karen, the
3: mature aged woman.
0: Karen, that's incredible. And congratulations on that. How How daunting was it to think i'm going to go back and study
3: um i don't think it was i i Ah. I actually did it all from distance education so because i'd lived in the country and all the universities that i went to weren't close by so i just had a real structured routine that i needed to go and study and sit down at my desk and do this to submit this uh, assignment on time. And it was really good. I really enjoyed it.
0: It sounds like this was going back to a passion you'd had for quite a while as well.
3: Yes. Well, I did volunteer in uh, a historical society museum that we lived near in the in the country, in Mount Beauty, and I wanted to get a paid job doing this and uh, had to have the qualifications. And I was just really fortunate to to get a job in this area and especially being a mature aged woman. So, uh, yeah, I'm really um, grateful for the last couple of years of uh, setting up this house museum in Geelong.
2: Karen, Karen I suspect you're uh, far more skilled than lucky <laughs>
3: uh, look it's it's um it's it's a real niche um, area and there, I think there are far more people coming out of university than jobs and um, it's it's Sometimes what you were just saying, sometimes it's who you know and not what you know, and then sometimes it's convincing people that you're the right person for the job.
0: And, Karen, obviously your work in that volunteer role really went a long way for that for you.
3: I, it did. It did, actually. And it was funny, um, when I was doing that role, I got, and it was during COVID, and there was a program called Work for Victoria, and it was trying to get people who had lost their jobs through COVID employed again. And I got, I got contacted by a, a man from an art gallery in Wodonga that had just started up saying, I just found you on LinkedIn and you're exactly what we needed. And we'd like you to come and work in our art gallery that we're just setting up. And so all of that volunteer work really helps. So if anyone's changing careers or wanting to get into a new path, I'm really recommending volunteering first off because it does really help.
0: Karen, thank you so much for that. And it's an incredible story. And, and Ellen, just quickly, I mean, do you, do you see that volunteer work as being a really good in for some of these changes as well in, in, in your work?
2: it's a really good pathway. And so working, uh, volunteering or, or working for, um, discounted rates as a freelancer, you know, often people don't feel very confident about charging, um, for their, um, skill when they're starting out. And I often say, we'll just manage that with price. You know, if you're not, if you're not as kind of experienced as someone else, you're just cheaper as someone else. And then the client gets to, to choose But um, that was such a great story from Karen and, you know, such congratulations um, to Karen and she's such a good example of how if you kind of just put one foot in front of the other, you can really get there. Because the other thing uh, that Karen didn't say expressly, but I do find with... um you know, she talked about being a mature aged worker, we often underestimate and we don't talk enough about the human skills that we've developed um, from just having kind of been in the world for longer and built relationships over time. And they're really valuable to an employer, you know, that I know that you can come in and you can talk to a whole range of people and I can ask you to do something and, and, and you'll get it done. And, and, it's, um, it's also really valuable, those soft skills or human skills as well, that we have, whether we've been working in a different job or industry or if we've been with our families as well, we've still been all developing those skills.
0: We touched on it a little bit earlier, but one of the things that can be a genuine hurdle for people trying to make a career shift is that the workplace itself has changed a lot over the years, and so is the nature of some work itself. Now, Dr Libby Sander is from Bond University. She's the founder and director of the Future of Work Project. Libby, good morning to you.
4: Good morning, Nick.
0: People making a career change later in life, uh, it just seems like sometimes you look at what a workplace looks like these days. You even look at some of the jobs that are available, and um, it would be difficult to know even where to begin.
4: Look, it can be. We've obviously got huge changes potentially in technology and the expectations of the platforms and technology that workers are expected to know. Some people say to me there are 17 different platforms they regularly have to use as part of their employment. And then you've got, yeah, the open plan offers. You've got now obviously hybrid working, um, things like compressed work weeks and the nature of project teams as opposed to sort of having one consistent role where this is your job and you do that every day of the year and of course that exists but it's much more fluid generally now where you're working in a project team on one particular thing and then that might shift over the course of the year so it's much more dynamic.
0: Uh, we were talking to Ellen before and she did mention of course that networking remains an incredible way of getting those jobs that sort of um, it, it's a case of who you know even if they're secondary networks I know some big companies have started even doing AI passovers for that first run of um, CVs and applications that come through. Uh, is that, I don't know, creating some difficulties for people making a career shift?
4: We've had this for a little while, maybe not so much with AI, but just screening with technology before you mm. even get to the interview. And it can be for sure because you miss that nuance of, you know, okay, maybe there isn't this linear path or these boxes that are ticked off. But when you look at all of the disparate pieces of this person's past, some of the things um, that your caller was talking about, then. You know, it takes sometimes that intuition to go, actually, this person's going to be a really good fit for the culture or there are things here that can really bring a lot of value to the organisation. And when we use the sort of yes or no um, tick boxes that start by technology, we can miss that.
0: Um, Ellen, feel free to jump in on this, but just quickly, Libby, it feels like post-pandemic we are more attuned to the idea of potentially changing work. Like we've lost a lot of our... Um, long-term tolerance for jobs that weren't making us happy.
4: Absolutely. And there was one really fascinating study that came out about the great resignation that showed that one of the key drivers of that, in fact, was death anxiety. So people in a pandemic are thinking, look, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, if there's going to be another pandemic, or I know someone who's been impacted by the pandemic. I'm no longer willing to sort of do what I was doing. I want more meaning and I want more purpose. And in fact, that was one of the key drivers of this transition that we saw during the Great
2: Resignation.
0: And and, and Ellen, have you seen an uptick, I guess, in those last few years? I think working
2: with employers, particularly during that time, we started to, of course, see increased um, turnover. But it was really interesting because while before the pandemic, you would kind of be, I'm going to say, competing with, you know, your competitors for talent. So if you're at NAB, you're worried about people going to ANZ. Um, Absolutely, just as Livy said with that research, we started seeing people weren't – people were going to be lavender farmers, you know, in Dalesford. (laughs) uh, Really... (laughs) It was all about purpose. So it wasn't enough for you to have better perks than the competitor. You had to really start thinking about the human experience and how you were helping people really feel like they were contributing. Um, so, yeah, I've definitely seen that play out in the real world. And I'm really unsurprised it's been identified in, in the research Livy spoke about.
0: Joe's called in. Joe's in Torquay. Joe, good morning to you. Good morning. What's um? What's your story of a career change?
5: Um. Well, I'm Generation X, and
0: welcome, welcome, I'm... congratulations. Same again.
5: Yep. <laughs> yes, I'm still here, <laughs> uh, and I um, decided to retrain as a graphic designer. Um, I don't know, eight or so years ago. And I think there's a narrative, uh, in our privileged Western world about, uh, follow your dreams and blah, blah, blah. But I found it incredibly difficult. And especially as an older person in a, in a game that's, um, mm. yeah, I reckon it's all young people and it's all that whole hustle culture. And I also, uh, was, uh, did the great resignation in 2021, I was like, well, I'm not going to stick around in this job that's got a bad work culture. And, yeah, it's just been incredibly hard. And I'm frustrated that uh, that employers aren't looking at those other soft skills in terms of, yeah, my life. You so, know, so, that so jo, just, you went you we? went
0: through the training, but then yeah. the actual getting the work itself sounds like it's been a real stumbling block.
5: Yes, it has, yeah. So I sort of, oh, man, I'm so emotional, I can't really talk about it. Yeah, no, no, that's it. okay. But yeah. Just knocking on doors and never getting an actual break has been, yeah, anyway. And on, John. Just, I'm someone that already has a degree from the 90s, working in film and TV most of my life, blah, blah, blah. So I
0: don't really want to cry on national radio. No, it's, it's an understandable thing to feel upset by and frustrated by. And I'm really glad you called in to share that experience because I think sometimes there's a tendency for us to think that every midlife career change or later life career change is going to be fantastic. And of course, you know, as we just heard then, it's been really tough for her. And, yeah. and Libby, we're going to talk a little bit more later about sort of where, I guess, issues of well, systemic ageism come into this, but obviously work cultures have problematic areas.
4: Look, absolutely. And unfortunately, uh, yeah, discrimination on the basis of age is, is not new. It's still certainly prevalent. And I think when we have stereotypes, it's very unhelpful in terms of only this type of person can do a role or, you know, this isn't going to work because this person has these particular requirements. We really need to look beyond that. And if we look at the modelling for labour shortages aside from what the value that these people can bring to the workplace. But we just don't have the talent going forward that that is going to be available. And that's, uh, you know, a concern in most Western countries. Uh, We've got declining rates of labour force participation. We've got, you know, ageing populations, people having less children. So, you know, we are going to need a mindset shift um, to make work more human for a start, but also to look at, the diversity and experience that different people can bring into the workplace because yeah, it's absolutely heartbreaking hearing that caller's story.
0: Yeah, and Joe, it really means a lot to me that you would call in on that and thank you very much for sharing that. We will speak a little more specifically uh, about the problems that um, can face people as they try and make that career change later in life, about that systemic ageism a little later in the hour. I mean, Ellen, Jo also mentioned that hustle culture, um, and we hear a lot about that, about young people coming in willing to work the hours that for many people, the great resignation was about finding a large amount of work balance. Um, and we're not prepared to necessarily do that.
2: Yeah, and, th- and then we also hear about, you know, Gen Z being entitled and lazy. But I, I just really wanted to say, uh, you know, Joe's experience is such a universal experience. Most people I speak to at some point in their career have had this experience of searching for a job and just finding the experience of, you know, not hearing back or kind of getting to the final stages over and over again. Um, and and it, the, the kind of job-searching approach of I see the job on Seek and I put the application in and I apply and I wait to hear back, it's a really, really challenging process and it's really hard on us. So I, I'm really glad to have um, and, and grateful to have heard from Joe on that because I don't think – I think almost everyone would think of a time in their career that, where they've had an experience like that and they've found it really deflating and it does tend to be the more um, – the more ambitious and brave we want to be in the change that we're making um, we can often find is the hardest time, you know, because you want, you are, as Libby said, you're really trying to convince that employer that you can do this thing that you love and you're passionate about. But employers just, they love putting the um, square peg in the square hole. So they love having (laughs) someone who's gone and they've done that for however many years, of course, when we hire that person, they get bored. So it's a funny little system that we've kind of brought about in, in recruitment, but it's a really common experience to find job searching really brutal.
0: Christine's on the line from East Gippsland. Christine, good morning.
6: Hey, going? Thanks for taking my call.
0: Oh, very happy to chat. What did you want to talk about this morning?
6: Yeah, look, I just, I was listening to what you were saying and just thinking about the affordability of, of a lot of, um, of just that affordability of changing careers or getting back into further education. And just thinking about Learn Locals and Learn Local is a statewide state government program that provides affordable courses, if you like, for people who are looking to change careers or who haven't been in the workforce for a while, who want to trial maybe a different sort of uh, career or um, or job activity and they're just affordable courses. So they're not a masters, they're not a degree, they're not a diploma, but they're affordable and they do give people the opportunity to be, to have a bit of a taste and, and think about look I've been at home uh, with the kids for a while, I'm looking to get back into work and learn local courses can support people really affordably and the other great thing that I love about learn local is that they're small class sizes or small group sizes Mm. in local communities and they're very supportive so I just thought that was another angle on um, that whole thing around getting back getting back to work or changing careers or or looking at different pathways into further education and and Learn Local is such a flexible, supportive model.
0: Christine, thank you because I hadn't heard about that and I really appreciate you um, offering that up to the conversation. Ellen Hooper, Careers Coach, thank you for your time this morning. You've been fantastic. I really appreciate your insights. And Dr Libby Sander uh, from the Future of Work Project, thank you for getting in touch today as well.
4: My pleasure. Thanks, Nick.
7: Thanks so much, Nick.
0: On the ABC Listen app... Your smart speaker and on AM radio.
7: This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and
0: Victoria. My name is Nick Healy, filling in for Rochelle this week. I'm in Shepparton in the Goulburn Valley. We're talking about making career changes, the big ones, doing it a little bit later in life. And as we've heard from a few different people, it can often require a whole new skill set. That can mean going back to school, which can be difficult, a little terrifying, to be perfectly honest, at the best of times. And many people think, what's it going to be like to study as a mature age student? Dr. Melinda Hildebrandt is Policy Fellow at Victoria University's Mitchell Institute. Melinda, good morning.
1: Morning, Nick. Thanks for having me.
0: I and we're talking way back in my university in the 90s um, I got tagged and I used to run some little workshops between first year students coming in straight out of high school and mature age students who were studying as well because it had been identified that there was a almost a, a very competitive difficult gap between the two where we saw these people who were you know I, I say older I think they were only about 30 when I look back now it's terrifying <laughs> to think that we regarded that as mature age but you know they were a bit older than us they were always Organised, they threw themselves into their study, yep. and they looked at us and saw sort of you know Wunderkins who didn't do anything and were still blasting through doing something they hadn't had a chance to do before. It wasn't till we all sat down together we realised we were quite simpatico and had quite a lot in common.
1: I agree. And I, as, a, as another Gen X person, I'm flooded with them today, um, I was also at uni in the 90s and there was like a like high key enmity between the school leavers and the mature yeah. age students. Um, and I think I remember that even as we went into sort of honours year and, and, and so on, that, um, that until you actually sat down and had more of an, an interaction and engagement and you thought, you know, I can actually learn something from people who are working hard and actually doing the reading. How about that?
0: How about that? It was quite a remarkable thing to learn. That what is the contemporary mature age students' experience like?
1: Well, I think it's. I think given how 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 much of a proportion, like a significant proportion now, um, of students at university, sort of domestic undergrad. Um, our mature age students um, I think and, and I guess the propensity of people now to be studying online, it's, it's much harder than sort of like pick out that cohort as you and I would have experienced where there's just that one person who's just making us all look bad in the corner of the tutorial room um, so I think <laughs> So I think, I think that, I think, you know, and obviously the way that university education has evolved, like a much more diverse kind of student base. So you'll have people from, you know, if we think about, think about a mature age student is technically 21 and above, but, you know, I think there's some kind of status, at least a bit of proportional, sort of like higher than 30%, the overall proportion of say 25 and above in the system. So I don't think... And I think you know, particularly if we're talking about sort of dual-sector universities, you, you know, it mm. may be that if you're studying... Um, you're doing, if you're doing courses at night or in a flexible mode, um, maybe most of the cohort that you're studying with will be of similar age or a much more diverse kind of age. And and then I think that can be a really positive experience because we've sort of been hearing about how, um, you know, it can be quite... Sort of confronting and challenging to come back to study um, after a break or or maybe having not completed um, high school and then coming back into the system. So it's sort of the university's obligation and know who our students are in that cohort and what this what a sort of what an optimal learning mode and set of pathways might look like.
0: It, the numbers you were saying before, it's a lot more in the system that I anticipated and has that yeah. changed? Has that altered in the last couple of decades?
1: I reckon, yeah. I think it's it's definitely spiked in the last decade, um, and even in the last five years, we've seen it's it's sort of continuing to to sort of climb. Um, and you know, I I mean, and I think also even just in a sort of semi post uh, COVID world, um, more people kind of changing careers, um, more people um, doing like having the ability to to do um, learning online is is kind of you know, you know, and doing what a university system should do is be kind of democratic and accessible to people from all walks
0: of life and ages. Melinda, stay there for a second because I, I want to talk to someone who's doing this right now. Sabelle Unilan is someone who's actually making a career change, moving from hairdresser to paramedic, on placement right now, as I understand it, for her Bachelor of Paramedicine degree, um, squeezing in a very quick chat on her break. Good morning, Sabelle. How are you? Morning. How are you? What made you want to make this change? This It's a very, very big career change.
8: It is a really big change, but um, I feel really fortunate enough um, just putting a bit of a positive on the pandemic. So I had a business for the last 14 years and then unfortunately COVID did shut down the hair and beauty industry for mm. 264 days. And then I just really wanted to help my community and get back into workforce and and I just thought what better way but to actually help my community but to get into paramedicine.
0: And, and you've built your way through this haven't you? If I understand it you did a certificate 3 then a diploma and now on to the bachelor. Is that the way you've kind of moved through that education?
8: Yeah correct. Yeah I just started with really baby steps and just did a, a little certificate which was you know that's where my passion really started to kick off and started to understand this is, I'm really, I'm really loving this. I'm, I'm really excited to do this. And then, um, you know, fast forwarding that and doing obviously well in that was the diploma opportunity and the university is actually the one that sort of held my hand and guided me and said, yeah, you should, you should really do this. This has
6: actually got your name on it. And
8: I thought, oh, okay. And then on from that. Never never in a million years did I think that I was going to be doing a Bachelor of Paramedicine in my mid-30s. No way.
0: What's it been like doing that Bachelor degree? Has there been a lot of support for you? Has it been easy to fit into your work, to your um, life?
8: To be honest, it has been challenging at a lot of times, but once you're hitting those milestones and you're passing those subjects and you're doing quite well, you get this abundant of confidence and you think yeah you know what I can do this I, if I can do this and work shift work you can and you can make the time and you know you're just getting so excited because you're around all these you know young different people all the time and they're supporting you and it's been amazing I haven't really had, had any negatives with it because I've just always been in a great environment.
0: And so how long have you got on your degree, Sabelle?
8: I have seven months left.
0: (laughs) Congratulations. Yeah. How how does that feel? You must be just ticking off the days.
8: Oh, To be honest, when we clocked over to 2004 this year and the realisation hit that I'm going to be a qualified paramedic by the end of this year, it feels really surreal.
0: And placement at the moment, what's that entail?
8: Yeah, so I am on placement at the moment, funny you ask. I am in Shepparton. And oh, yeah. so we're in Shepparton at the moment and um, including your um, placement, you do 120 hours every year of your degree and the way it works is the universities place you into um, areas that Ambulance Victoria need students and we need to obviously see certain type of work to get, you know, milestones ticked off. And I think it's a really good way to understand what the actual job entails. So you're doing the degree, you're doing the university, you're doing the assignments, which is fantastic. But then you're getting that actual on road experience and working hand-on-hand on patients. It really shows you whether or not you're interested or not.
0: Sabelle, thank you so much for your time this morning. I'll let you get back to what you're doing. Apologies for the Shepherd and weather. It's been a very wet morning, but yeah, congratulations yes. on, on how you're going. I really appreciate it. Sabelle Uniland is one of the people we've been talking about who's making that career change. Melinda, it was interesting to hear the steps she took on that coming through that certificate into the diploma, into the fully fledged degree.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think I think it's great to highlight the people who say don't have a lot of knowledge about those different levels and pathways that are available in the university system. So, you know, maybe, like, I think for a lot of people, it might be just taking a small bite of the cherry initially, coming in to, say, you know, a grad cert at a taste level and maybe that just to get their confidence, you know, in, in their, you know, learning um learning and, and sort of study ability. And then um, and then maybe they just find, like, I actually do really love this. But I think thinking, hearing from, from Sybil about her, her really, like, the, her, she was so definite about her choice because I think mm. the believers what we note in the data, there's a lot of wastage in the system for people who come out of come out of school and maybe they start and don't complete three or four things over a period of five years. And, you know, it kind of breaks my heart to see that even in just even in the raw data, when you think about the waste of time and the the debt that, that those students are incurring. So sometimes somebody like Sybil, who's you know, happily um, you know, engaged in one career in the first part of her life. And then I think, you know, another one of the kind of key um hallmarks of mature age experience is that often that that sort of mid age choice is um is the catalyst will be can be sort of a circumstance in their life. So the pandemic affected her existing career mm. and then so then once she made that choice it was like so the right choice for her, um, but then you know the experience then needs to bear that out. So um, so happily, you know, as a VU student, she's coming to study and it has met her expectations. So I think that's the other the other kind of obligation for universities is to kind of understand that. So it's the, so flexibility is one thing. So we could assume that lots of mature age students are coming in and they have work and care responsibilities so online will work for them but it doesn't. it's not always the case because this is also a cohort that, that will probably benefit more from having interactions with other students um, and that's kind of borne out in the data like better completion rates for those students.
0: Dr Melinda Hildebrand, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate you uh, holding on the line there for a while. Um, Melinda's a policy fellow at the Victoria University's Mitchell Institute. Um, I was at university. She talked about sort of some wasted times. I was at uni at the age of 17 and did a degree that I have never done anything with, the actual degree I did. Um, I kind of got out of university and immediately went sideways in terms of a career, um, I think I would have benefited from going to university a little bit later in life after I'd had time to think about what I really wanted to do. Now, a few people have called in and we've sent a couple of texts as well talking about midlife career changes, one of the big barriers, genuinely being systemic racism it's been touched on by a few people it has been completely uh, derailing some of their decisions to try and make those career changes now, i wanted to look more closely at it because we know it is a big problem right across australia patricia sparrow is the ceo of the council on the aging and patricia good morning to you good morning how big a deal in the workplace generally is ageism
7: Ageism is quite a big deal in a variety of ways. So, it's it's about a third of older people say they've experienced it. Not everybody reports experiencing it. Hmm. And we know that the most common is actually in employment. And we know that one in three recruiters have actually said that they wouldn't consider employing someone over 50. So, um, the experience and recruiters looking at it, it's it's not a good recipe for people who are looking for work who are over 50.
0: Do we have a sense of why recruiters think that people over 50 are not the right fit? I mean, do we hear kind of their their take on it?
7: The most common thing we hear is that people are overqualified and maybe that's because (laughs) they don't understand that an older person maybe wants a less demanding job. And that's what older people are told all the time, you know, you're overqualified. Um, and sometimes we think others in the workplace can feel threatened by an older worker, maybe they want to take our job or they're they're more qualified than me. Um, And also the other thing that we hear about why people don't recruit over 50 is they don't necessarily think it'll be a good cultural fit. But I think this does play into a broader ageist, you know, ageist kind Mm. of attitude that we have in the community.
0: Where, Where does that cultural fit come into it?
7: Um, I think because um, we have up to about five generations in the workplace now, and I think people uh, sometimes mistakenly think that perhaps older and younger workers aren't going to aren't going to gel and get on. What no, right. we see is that well, workplaces where they have a a mix of age ranges, they're actually some of the most productive workplaces. Um, and it's really important that you have a mix of experience and skills. Um, and having that sort of across the ages is actually a really important thing to do. Um, and so we think that workers need, uh, workplaces need to embrace that more and think about ageing and older people as part of their diversity and inclusion plan like they, they do for any. I mean, we're a big part of the population, so it's not from that point of view, but I think we want employers to think about it. You know, how do we attract older workers? We need to attract older workers because there's lots of jobs where we don't have people working. Older people want to work, so there's a happy happy. Uh, you know, happy thing there about if we yeah. can match those two together, we can fill more jobs than we can. And it has the benefit of that intergenerational um, intergenerational balance in the workplace.
0: Well, actually, Tom's called in on this very topic. Tom in Melbourne. Tom, good morning. Morning. You've trained recently uh, as a bit of a career change.
9: What's been your experience? So it's been very hard. Like I've been trying to get in an uh, electrical apprentice trade for the last two years I was looking that they required a pre-app so i did the pre-app as like a free trade course and i mean i have sent thousands of resumes on emails on a lot of uh, other websites uh, job portals not a single phone call i called them and they said oh we don't want to hire a mature apprentice because it's just costly and i already have one trade degree and i'm um, i studied a uh, uh, bachelor degree in commerce, which is specialized in accounting and auditing, and it's quite funny when we are crying for electrician because we're gonna phase out uh, gas in the near future, but every no one wants to hire a mature apprentice, and there's so much shortage of tradesmen in Australia. And it doesn't make sense to me. And I don't have any industry connection that mm. mostly required for this sort of thing. And it's frustrating that uh, why is like this, you know?
0: Tom, not to be rude, sorry, but yeah, you know, just roughly what is your age that you're hearing you're too old to do this? <laughs>
9: um, you're gonna be laughed, thirty one.
0: Thirty one and you're being told you're too old to be to be getting that apprenticeship. That's
9: that's it's a mature age, but they because they have to pay mature age uh, minimum wage, which is about twenty two dollars, and uh, they don't want to pay. But they would hire some uh, uh, some young apprentices who just stick on TikToks or refuse to do or like refuse to learn honestly. Because when I was doing pre-app, I I have seen it uh, how like those young kids was not interested in studying or learning or learning uh, like their hand tools skills. And I was just quite amazed uh, for me that what happened. Like Tom, they... th-
0: thank you so much for calling in because that is a, a ridiculous thing to be in a situation of. I mean, Patricia, we were talking about over 50 before being told over 30 that you mature age.
7: That's just crazy. I mean, technically, I think an older worker is defined as someone over 45, which is which is still incredibly young if you think about mm. the number of years that you can work. So, um, I'm very surprised to hear someone over 31 has been told that and that's a lousy experience for Tom. I mean, one of the things I would say too is we obviously speak on behalf of, of older people, but ageism actually hurts us all and we know that younger workers are subject to stereotypes as well. So, one of the things that we think is really important is that employers actually look at an individual person as an individual person for the talent and the skills that they bring and for what they can do, rather than making assumptions that because you're 25, um, you know, you're not going to be committed or that because you're uh, no. 70 or 65 or 60, you're not going to be able to train to do technology. And that, that's a lot of, you know, as I was talking about those ageist stereotypes that underpin a lot of things that people actually don't consciously know that they're doing it. There's kind of a internalised and a benevolent ageism, but it leads to structural issues where people can't get work. And we need to do much, much better. And we do think that one of the things that should that should be done is we, we want to work with employers about, you know, having their diversity and inclusion plans and having uh, programs in place that support older workers and intergenerational workforces we think is important. And also for government to look at we're an ageing, Country, And we need older people to work. Older people indeed want to work, many of them. So how do we have a a strategy for older Australians in an ageing country that makes sure that everybody gets the opportunity? But the key thing is to stamp out these ageist stereotypes at at whatever age.
0: And and it is about changing workplace culture, but more broadly, Australian societal culture by the sounds of it
7: it is because we don't you know we we we've got a long way to go in addressing sexism and racism but people know what that is and they can see it but i think ageisms you know an ism that we haven't really focused on and people don't perhaps realize that they're being um that they're being ageist and I was saying before we've all got some internalized ageism about you know, I I would say sometimes I'm, I'm too old for that. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's that's not the right thing to say. I'm not too old for, for lots of things. Um, and there's a benevolent ageism which we've seen in service delivery. So in aged care, there was some research done. And um, while they didn't think they were being ageist, after they'd had some training, they discovered that they were and one of the examples was a worker huh. saying, you know, I actually yell at everybody because I assume they can't hear me. Um, oh. But you don't want to do that. You want to go, you know, does this person have a hearing problem? Do I need to speak a little bit louder? Or make sure that I'm standing in front of them, in front of them, so they can hear me. And if this person doesn't, then I don't need to do that. So it is that thing about we make all these assumptions based on someone's age, um, and that's what we need to stop doing as individuals and as a country. But we've got a lot of work to do as a country to really get people to understand what ageism is and to actually um, turn that around. And we have to, as we as we're increasingly aged population.
0: Because clearly those benefits are right there. Patricia Sparrow, thank you so much for your time this morning. Patricia is the CEO of the uh, CODA, the Council on the Aging. Tomorrow, you and I are going to talk about food waste. Now, I know it's a topic you'll come back to a few times, but how do we make the most of it? We're actually going to look at some of the more interesting innovations when it comes to repurposing Food. We're going to meet the minds, the, the folk, the scientists who are doing some excellent work when it comes to that field in particular. That's it. Thank you for your company today. I look forward to speaking with you tomorrow.